Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Kristen Wood. Kristen is the CEO and president of the Grist Mill Exchange. During her 20 years at CIA, she served across the agency in the director's area and in three directorates, analysis, operations, and digital innovation, specializing in transforming or building new capabilities. Kristen was the president's daily brief briefer for Vice President Cheney and his national security advisor. She led the agency director's analytics support team built and led the agency's advanced analyst program and served as the deputy chief of a Middle East-focused operations division. Her final role in government was as the deputy director of the Innovation and Technology Group at the Open Source Center. Wow, Kristen, that is some bio. Um, We are so thrilled to welcome you today on Iron Butterfly. We're excited to have you with us. And I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about your background and your path into the IC. Well, so first of all, Megan, I have to say thank you so much for having me on. It's just an honor to be here. Um, It's just remarkable to see the breadth and depth of background and expertise that has been um, discussed in multiple podcasts. So I'm just, I'm honored to be even here to participate. So thank you again, and um, thanks for the question. So I think there's really very little about my background that says intelligence community. I grew up in a very small um, farming community in California, and um, we were we were very poor, and uh, I was the oldest of five. And uh, I would just say it was a very difficult home life. Um, and so um, growing up that way, I think... Uh, I, I, for some reason in high school, started thinking, I really, really want to work for the federal government. And who knows why that happened, but it did. And it was relentless in terms of thinking about it. And so I think the gifts um, uh, in hindsight of a difficult home life are that they prepare you for things that are really uh, tremendous advantages as an employee. I think, um, you know, I got really good at reading a room because you never knew what was coming. And that has stood me in good stead for the 40 years since I've been there. I think also anticipating and addressing problems before they come up, Um, seeing what might happen and having a plan for it is always really useful. And I think, um, you know, kind of the other thing is just compassion for people who are in challenging situations. Um, You know, many of us have been there and, you know, it's not fast forward to being the CEO of a company or in a senior leadership position. I mean, it's every day that um, we get to that place. So, um, you know, how did, how did all that manifest? Well, I went to college um, uh, at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. And um, during my junior year, my advisor asked what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I really want to work for the federal government. He said, well, that's handy because I spent many years as an analyst at CIA, would you like me to connect you? And that's what he did. So that was just a tremendous uh, fate meant to be whatever it was, but it it really worked out fabulously. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your background. I think it's really important for folks to hear, um, you know, the women and men of the intelligence community come from all different backgrounds, all different experiences of life. And so thank you for sharing that with us. You know, one of the things I've heard you say is when people tell me I can't, I will. 
And I, I love that. How did that attitude shape your career path in the IC? Thank you for that. It is one of my favorite phrases. I mean, I love it when someone tells me I can't do something because, you know, it's, you know, hold my wine. Let's, let's go do it. Um, <laughs> right. But I think it comes with, um, for many of us, and, and I only know this in hindsight after many years of working with people, when we start at places like the CIA, I, I, I always thought I was the only one with um, imposter syndrome. And, you know, some way, somehow someone is going to come along when I'm sitting at my desk and tap me on the shoulder and say, yeah, we figured out who you really are. You're out. And so I can't even tell you, it's probably a couple decades I had that concern. Um, but what I learned to do is fake it. That whole fake it till you make it thing is mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely, you know, it's trite because it's true. It absolutely is the difference maker. And I think knowing that I, I was hyper-focused on being as good as I could be every day because of that fear and, you know, also combined with the national security mission is, I mean, for those of us on it, as many, many of your listeners know, there's just, it's in our DNA right? and you want to do whatever you can to support the mission regardless of what your role is. So the importance of the challenge and the fear of not being up to it really led uh, myself and many others to do the hardest things we could possibly do to make sure that we were supporting the mission. Um, I think the other thing is that at CIA, you get responsibility very, very early. Mm -hmm. So it isn't after five years of the job or 10 years on the job, it's nearly immediately. I think within the first 10 months of my career, I was working in active war, um, an active war and making the calls about what was happening. I came from a political science background and it's all the training that I was given in my first few months that enabled me to be a voice about what was happening in the world. So it was remarkable. So I think the other big piece of this is when someone is successful at doing a hard thing, Mm -hmm. people ask them to do more hard things. And the beauty in that really is the things, many of the jobs I had terrified me before I went into them and slowly you get used to it and realize, I realized I could do it. I could Mm -hmm. do that thing. I could do the next thing. And I could help someone else who filled the role after me get through their, you know, fear in the job and get to the point where they were comfortable and racing along in it. So I really think that thing of doing the hard thing. Mm-hmm. is so important because it's really surprising how fast that thing isn't as hard anymore. Right. And so the agency gives tons of opportunity for things like that. There are things that are always tough. You know, when, when you lose someone, when um, we fail and, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about some of those things later in the podcast. Absolutely. So this is a great transition to kind of talk, to begin to talk about your career, which is, um, you know, we could talk for hours about. But, you know, you had the opportunity in your career to work on the Persian Gulf War and the Balkans War. Could you share with us your experience during these conflicts? And, you know, how did your gender play a role, if at any, in those conflicts? Oh, I mean, you. in, in your work during that time, <laughs> not yeah. in the conflict. Uh, yeah. Directly. Thank you. I, I tried to avoid being in the, being, you know, a, a participant in, you know, one side of a war or not, you know, Absolutely. we might've, we might've had wars over space, but those weren't the same kind that we're talking about. <laughs> right. Um, so actually I was, I was thinking about this and I worked the Angolan civil war, both Persian Gulf wars, the Balkans war and the war on terror. So um, that's five, I think. And, wow. you know, really is, a reflection of the times we have been in over the last 30 years in our national security um, situation. I think it was an interesting time because when I came into the agency in the late eighties, I came into a part of the organization then known as NPIC or the national photographic photographic interpretation center, a big piece of what is now um, the national geospatial agency or NGA. And there weren't very many, women in uh, analyst roles, imagery analyst roles at the time. 
Um, it was a time of a huge hiring um, boom that the national security community was seeing. And um, imagery analysts had traditionally been military, either officers or enlisted. And all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recent college graduates came into the organization and really fundamentally, I think, started to change the culture. There were definitely clashes of culture at moments, right, where this is the way it's always been done. And now you people are coming in and it has to be different. Um, Not being able to smoke in the office was huge for the folks who've been able to do it forever. And, you know, now you think about it, there's just, it's just not even a consideration. Right. Um, You know, there were folks who are used to having, um, you know, all sorts of magazines and things up uh, on their cubicles that they were not happy about having to take down. And it's just, it's just the way it was um, before then. So uh, part of the role, it's, it's this new dynamic of recent college graduates all now learning the military uh, imagery techniques and how the tradecraft where it used to be former military, but we just all had such different experiences of we were all working together in college. It was the way that we were all accustomed to our whole lives. So I think it did have an enormous impact on the culture there. Um, I, I think what was really interesting though, is the different perspectives we brought the whole group, but you know, particularly the women, um, I had one, manager, first line manager, I'd gotten an account that was the least interesting account in the team. And I dutifully did my work and I found it fascinating. I mean, as an imagery analyst, you get to look down on the world and be the first person to see something. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes our adversaries would write very special messages that you could see from space. Um, You know, lots, they they knew a lot of our swear words. (laughs) I could spell them in (laughs) English really well. Um, but new dynamics, things that were happening about partnerships, the things that it, you just, you had to see to believe. So in one instance, um, there were a group of seniors who had spent three days at what we call the IDEX machine. So you had an, in the olden days, you had a light table where mm-hmm. you put your film on the light table and you look through it through a Zoom and it just archaic by the the standards of what's available now. But if you really wanted to be very advanced, you went to the IDEX machine, which is where you could actually digitize it and then manipulate it a little bit to see what the story was. Um, So the first manager uh, wasn't always uh, very supportive of women. Um, In fact, he told me he didn't think that women should be working. But um, so he was a little patronizing. He's also the guy, the reason I have a 401k, because he insisted on all of us have them. So it's not, you know, all bad. All negative. Yeah. <laughs> this was really powerful for me because he, uh, at every turn, would tell me what I couldn't do. So after three days sitting at this machine, the senior analyst and him, I happened to get some time on it from my little account, you know, on another machine. And he says, oh, Kristen knows what this is. We've been wasting our time. So Kristen, why don't you tell us what that is? And I looked at it and I said, it's a test stand. It's the same as the one in this Asian country. And they all looked at me astonished because that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And it was proof of proliferation for the very first time. Oh my goodness. And it just looked like that's what it was because I'd looked at that facility and I think it was one of those things that I hadn't been the expert. I hadn't been agonizing it over, over days. I hadn't been, you know, scrolling in scrolling out and trying to see what it was. It was just an instant reaction, but it gets to the value of diversity, Mm -hmm. um, both that's diversity of expertise. Sometimes someone who is a novice actually gives really useful insights to those of us who've been sitting on account for a long time. Did it change your relationship with him and the manager after that, after that instance or not really? No. And I actually didn't get credit for the call either. (laughs) Anyway, but I have a 401k because, or we call it thrift savings plan in government. Um, I, because of him and his insistence that we all do the, do this and made us sign all the documents and all that. So, um, but it's really not that this is, 
he was a bad person. Yeah. It's just, it was lack of familiarity. And over the time I worked there, that changed very, very much. I don't think at um, CIA headquarters, that was the same case, right? There were always women in the analytic workforce for sure, uh, much less in the operational environments. But by the time I was in operations, it was um, the middle, you know, 2006 ish. So much, much, much had changed by then. Mm-hmm. So I think um, one of the most important thing for me, uh, another in- really interesting thing that happened as a woman was um, we had a task force, which is the first thing, first time I had a chance to sign up to be on a 24-7, you know, go all the time operation and to see how that worked, right? How do you, how do you work 24-7? Yeah. How do you, um, you know, do shift work and all of those things? And so um, because I was, um, I volunteered and I was the one woman on the team, they gave me logistics, um, first Persian Gulf War. And because the military hardware should be the military guys and guys uh, in general. And, you know, that's what they said to me. So I don't feel like I'm it's not analysis. That's what they said. You know, I would do better there. So it was fine. Um, I learned about fuel bladders and all sorts of, you know, oil trucks and everything you could possibly imagine, which was really interesting. But it turns out that we were worried at the time, this is uh, Saddam Hussein had gone in and invaded Kuwait. And there was a lot of concern at the time that he would also invade Saudi Arabia. And an army can't advance to that kind of a new theater, unless they have the logistics support. So I would get calls from uh, Charlie Allen, who Megan, you know, um, but he's a legend in the intelligence community for his, I think, 60 years of government service and counting um, in terms of his additional work he does on the outside. But some man named Charlie would call me every day and say, what's going on. And so I would tell him what's going on. I had no idea who Charlie was. He was just, he, he was on the secure line and he was very interested. And um, at one point, my uh, direct supervisor overheard me talking to Charlie. He said, who's Charlie? I said, I don't know. He's some guy named Charlie Allen. <laughs> and he's like, what? Why is Charlie Allen calling you? I'm like, I don't know. He wants to know about logistics, but I was just so clueless about politics and rank. And it was a man on the secure phone who had the clearance to get the answer. So um, I I would say there's some advantage to cluelessness sometimes, but it it just goes to show that it doesn't really matter where on the team we are. There's a, there's a role to perform and there's opportunity to serve and it will always be useful. I, I really, um, I got a lot out of that experience. And I, I think over time, it's really been a remarkable opportunity being a woman in some of these situations, because it's not just our culture, you know, back at the time who had challenges with women in the workforce, it overseas, it happens too. And being underestimated is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, because you get a lot more opportunity to get answers. People have to explain more. It works out really well. So yeah. um, it, it's not just a negative. There can be a positive side of it too. Might as well take advantage of it. Absolutely. Man, these are great stories. So, you know, working, you know, you named quite a few wars. Um, I can imagine that there were a lot of moments of high emotion and fear you know, during those times, um, and you had mentioned 9-11 as well, or I had mentioned it, um, you know, could you tell us how you kind of work through those moments? And is that something that you do, you know, you're working through yourself or is it, is it kind of, you know, you have a team, so it, it, it's, you're working through those moments as a team? I think both are true. It is both a team effort and an individual, I mean, powerful for both, right? I think for me, coming in as a new college graduate who really didn't, I didn't have a military, family wasn't former military, so I just didn't have the context to understand what that level of service was like. And I'm just beyond honored to have witnessed military service in addition to 
the National Security Service, just remarkable people who've been in my career trajectory. But I think uh, it was really hard for me to make the transition in some ways. And you know, one example is in the first Persian Gulf War, as hard as it is to believe, they sometimes would call back to ask for airstrike um, geocoordinates. So using satellite imagery to do geocoordinates at the time was not the best and most accurate way of doing it. I'm sure pilots today and imagery analysts today would be horrified by the thought, right? But, you know, it's a giant fuel depot or a giant, whatever it was, bivouac of, of trucks. And so if they got close, they saw it, but it was a real moral dilemma for me. If they're going to be the next day, all of these things are blown up and there are people there. And uh, I just never thought of it in that kind of a direct way as a 22, 23, 24 year old. So I went to my boss at one point saying, I just don't know if I can do this. I mean, what if someone there dies? And I had uh, one of my other bosses was this wonderful, wonderful man. And he said, well, Kristen, (laughs) as he is from the South, I I apologize to anyone from the South, but my, (laughs) my California fake Southern accent, but he'd say, you know, I, I, I can't work that out for you, but if you can't do it, I need to get someone who can. Yeah. And it, it took a while and he just said, look, if we don't, if we don't stop them, more people are going to die. And it it was really hard though. And it's just when these moral dilemmas on TV or moral dilemmas, you know, in class, it's one thing, but I mean, really, who do I want to be as a human? And, you know, no one wants to be involved in something that uh, damages someone's life or hurts it or, or ends it. And in the end of the day, that is what, you know, war, war is about. Uh, there's a winning side and a losing side. And it's just, uh, it's been really a powerful experience that I have such empathy for people who are on the missions. And I think about um, the both military and national security professionals who spent many, many, many years in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere serving and losing Uh, friends and witnessing horrible things happen. And I just think that's an unsaid, unsung part of service. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, we're seeing this epidemic of PTSD, not just in the military, but in the national security community too, because this is a lot. It is a lot over a lot of years without a break. So um, sorry, tangent for me. I I think um, one of the, ways that we coped with it is this team being a part of a team where you could talk to someone else about it and they were struggling in a similar way or, or get context from someone who was a senior analyst or a senior operations officer to work through those things. So that team part is you, we knew we were doing what we could to advance our, our nation's national security goals. And it had to be done even if it was hard. So uh, I really, I think that piece is huge. That, that piece is really maybe understated is sometimes it's only people who've served with you in these mm-hmm. awful, awful, awful situations that you, you really understand each other and it creates these lifetime bonds. I mean, I, some people I haven't seen in 20 years and it's like it was yesterday because we went through these really hard, hard things together. Well, I think there's something that you pointed out, you just, you've said out loud, and I don't think is said enough is, you know, we focus on PTSD for the folks that have served in the military. But I I think people don't know that um, there are folks in the national security community, and the intelligence community that also serve and risk their life. And, and there are folks in, in our community that, that lose colleagues and friends as well. Um, and so I, I'm glad that you pointed that out. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a scale issue, right? In our, yeah. our right. The national security community, it's just so much smaller than the defense department, at least key, the, some key elements of it. So, um, but having served alongside military, it's, it's a similar experience and they, it, it's really, really important. One of my, uh, I think I mentioned this to you in a prior call, but, you know, starting in 
NPIC in the beginning, in the, my very first day of entering on duty or EODing, there were three other women who made all the same stops I did as the bus was offloading us to the various locations we were going to work in. And the four of us became fast friends in the late 80s. And as happens over time, you know, we met people and got married and had kids and really just kept that tight connection. And so, you know, fast forward many years later uh, to late 2000s, um, Jennifer Matthews was one of them. And she had gone on to target Al-Qaeda to focus on Al-Qaeda many years before. And she was killed by a suicide bomber in Coast with a number of other agency officers and contracts, contractors. And I think it, it's just, that's one person and there's so many others who have been lost. But the impact of that on her community, on the women who she served with, on those of us who are friends, um, hearing her daughter sing an acapella version of Do You Hear the People Sing?, from Les Mis, if you know that. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, the there's a saying that the price of freedom isn't free and it's trite, it's because it's true. But for those who have served in places like that and we've seen, we've lost friends and colleagues and, in, and too many of them, it really is not. And so the mission imperative, the imperative to be as good as we can be every single day, regardless of what's going on in our lives or our health or otherwise, really, it can't be overstated because we know the consequences of failure. It's really hard to, to move, move to the next question here. I, I want to say, first, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, and I'm sorry that you lost your friend and colleague and... Um, I, I just really appreciate that you're sharing this with us and, and, um, and just thank you. It's, it's Jennifer, right? She was amazing. So, and there's so many people like that, that I know, or, you know, or I mean, those of us who are, those of your listeners who are on listening to today's podcast, know it's, it's, um, it's a part of life and particularly in the Washington DC metro area where so much of this community is, um, and I, I really, I hope that we pause long enough to remember them. Right. Well, and it's just so important, you know, I think one of the things, if it's not, if it's not obvious to our listeners who've been with us for a while, um, is that we wanted to do with this podcast is to show that people, people like yourself and the other people we've had on are people, are mothers, our, our friends, our daughters, our wives, are all of these things. Um, and sometimes, you know, and in most cases, they're those things first, but very closely, or if not in, in, in tangent, are also these just badass women who love um, serving and, and serving the U.S. And so let's try and shift a, a little bit and let's talk about your time in a different role that you've you've served um and you were a briefer at the white house during 9-11 so another really tough time in our history and and probably um you know everywhere and all the organizations uh in the u.s so what was that experience like for you we've we've talked to a few briefers um in the past, but I mean, to be a briefer at that time must have been just such a unique experience. It, it, being a briefer is always a unique experience. And there's, there are a lot of funny reasons and there are a lot of painful reasons. And, um, you know, we would have to do like eight podcasts on that and bring in a bunch of people. And it's just remarkable what happens, but this relationship between the intelligence officer and the principal and in any case is all about trust. Mm -hmm. And does the principal believe that you, that he or she can trust you with, to bring the information they need to make whatever decisions they need to make in their roles, but they do, do they trust the agency you're from or the intelligence community or, you know, fill in the blank location. And sometimes it comes with baggage. 
Mm-hmm. I think in my case, uh, I was one of the team that started with the new, uh, the Bush administration, 43. Mm-hmm. And it, we were with them for eight, nine months, I guess, before all of this happened. And it is that such a powerful time in my life because we could see it coming for months. We, the drumbeat was there. We were getting intelligence reports. We were getting liaison foreign service reports. We were seeing claims in the news, all of those signs in a way that we had never seen before. So we absolutely knew it was coming and people in the counterterrorism community across the national security space were working their tails off to try to find what it was or where it was or when it was. And we failed. Hard stop. We failed. Wow. And we did not protect the nation. We did not win. And I can't tell you how profoundly that affected each one of us in the community, not just, not just briefers, not just me, not just CIA, not just the intelligence community, but DOD. It's this sense of our job is Mm -hmm. to make sure the American people can go about their lives in the way they want free from worry of about harm. And we failed. So it was a very beautiful day in September and gorgeous, gorgeous fall day in uh, Washington, D.C. And I'd been down at the White House briefing the vice president's chief of staff, Scooter Libby. And we had talked about why Al-Qaeda had killed Massoud which had just happened. Why were they trying to curry favor with the Taliban? What might that mean? And, you know, I would have asked the team, Mm -hmm. but I got back to the office. And we, one of the things about being a briefer is you get the office, the size of like a postage stamp. (laughs) Um, You know, at the time it was on the seventh floor of the CIA headquarters building because, you know, we had to go down and brief the senior leadership after all of us came back, we had to go brief the senior leadership about what happened that day and prepare for the book the next day. So I'm in my little postage stamp office typing away, you know, the taskings that he had had related to a whole sort of topics. And one of the other briefers came in and just gave me the strangest look. And I have to say, I was tired and I was busy. And I just said, what? And he said, you've got to watch TV. And it, never at work is that an answer. <laughs> that's a part of anyone who says you've got to watch TV because there's no time. So he's, I just said, I am really busy. And he said, no, no, no. It's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. You have to come watch. So I, something about his tone of voice or look on his face. I got up and got to the television just as a second plane hit. And, you know, the whole team of briefers just looked at each other and we knew exactly what it was. And this here was the answer, not only to the question of why had Al-Qaeda killed Masood, but what it was. And then, of course, the day unfolded and that wasn't the extent of it. So uh, my husband at the time and I worked about 20 yards apart on that seventh floor. And he had a my job as a briefer. You know, prior to 9-11, you know, we would get in about one in the morning, you know, after 9-11, it was about 10 in the evening, right? Because there was so much more reporting to go through and his job was a day job. So um, we had already decided if something like that happened because CIA headquarters was also a target um, that one of us would leave depending on what time of day it was. So called him, we chatted, we talked about it and he said, you go. So pushed off my computer and, you know, left because it's that, that real feeling of our kids need to have one parent. Yeah. Wow. And so I think like many who served at the time, I was just honored to be able to help and 
in briefing principals to prepare the response and trying to help them feel that they had the depth of understanding that we could offer on this developing situation. I think it was this constant feel at the time though, is what's next. And there were a lot of credible threats. There are some really important things that got stopped. And I think that's a remarkable accomplishment, but it was a entirely different uh, battle rhythm an entirely different level of focus on counterterrorism almost exclusively for the first time. So you may remember at this time, the vice president was going to the undisclosed location, Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of them so that he and the president would not be in the same place in the event Mm -hmm. something else happened. And so um, we, the vice president's main briefer and I would take turns because now there were, there were not separate briefings for the vice president and the chief, the national security advisor. They were always all together at the undisclosed location. And so you would go there and it, it was hours as opposed to a 20 to 30 minute briefing, which is pretty much what it was before it went to two, two and a half hours. And I would just say for someone like um, vice president Cheney, who'd been in government for decades, he'd been a, a congressman. He'd been the chief of staff to the white house. He'd been the secretary of defense. He'd served in a number of really prominent uh, oil and gas roles but having anything to say to him that can provide value add for that long is really hard. But we were really the one, pe- one set of people who came in new because his team didn't leave. And it wasn't like internet access and capability just wasn't what it is now. And so there was such pressure from from all of us, we felt it for ourselves, the community felt it is to what can we do to possibly contribute to the response to making sure it doesn't happen again. And to be able to do that, it was just one of the great privileges of my life. Um, We have done as a community remarkably well in stopping things. It's not always perfect. Mm-hmm. But um, this is so, it was such an important moment. We saw all of the SSCI reports that came out, or at least their, their massive report. There are all sorts of evaluations of what went wrong. A lot of those things are true. Hopefully the better partnerships that exist now, the, you know, in most places, seamless connection to the military much better ties between the FBI and CIA. And, you know, I could go on and on in terms of relationships, but I think the power of relationships, not only within our individual agencies, but across them was so important to being able to have the day when president Obama broke in to say bin Laden, Osama bin Laden had been brought to justice. That happened in a moment. I was outside of the community um, was just so burned out after many, many high profile jobs. I took six years and did something entirely unrelated, but I, my sons who were three and five, when, uh, nine 11 happened and started being worried about airplanes crashing into buildings. Um, my younger son, when I did my outbrief with vice president Cheney, when he's a little, he stuttered and he was trying as hard as he could. And he asked him, you know, when he was going to find Osama bin Babin and <laughs> Vice President Cheney was just, a, he's a, just a gentleman. And he, he told them that it was his mother's uh, agency's job among others. And he was confident it was going to happen. I don't think any of us took, thought it would take so long, but I woke him up and his brother up that night so they could listen to their boogeyman was no longer there. Wow. So it's just, I mean, it's such a power, powerful episode in my life and my family's life and in our, I mean, wildly more importantly in our, our national life. And it's shaped really until the last few years, much of our, our approach to national security and foreign policy. 
I, I just can't imagine, uh, you know, serving at that time and what the community was like and, uh, you know, getting through that time together. I'm sure your professional relationships, especially it's hard to describe for folks outside of this community, but your professional relationships here in D.C., especially within your agency and within the IC, are so, so important because there's so much you can't talk about outside of work. So, you know, unlike, you know, working in Illinois somewhere, let's say for an insurance company, you could go home and tell your spouse and your kids about everything you've done that day, right? But when you're in a job like yours, you can't do that. And so having the relationships you have with um, your colleagues are incredibly important. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us, because we're Iron Butterfly and, you know, we really like focusing on the women of the intelligence community, were there, were there women, um, you know, during this time, but really I would say in your career that were very important to you? Gosh, so many. I think in the 90s, I would say Bonnie Hirschberg, who was a senior um, manager of analysis, um, focusing on leadership. But she was one of the people who way back, way back when we were very, very junior officers um, and, and created a women's professional development organization She's one of the seniors who came forward and offered to help us learn how to be professional women, how to think about risk, how to think about a career path, how to think about what kind of work we wanted to do. And that was just invaluable. She was so generous with her time. I also think of Patty Kinsfodder, who was, um, I worked with in the counterterrorism center. She was my um, I was a first line supervisor and she was the chief of the whole deputy, the chief of the whole center. And she always had our backs and always fought to get us the resources we need and understood when we were drowning. And you know, we ended up being in a 24 seven operation as we were trying to determine if Saddam Hussein had had a role in the nine 11 attacks. And I said, look, I can be here 24 seven, but there's nobody the vending machines only offer so much, even that famous hot dog machine in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, we just need a fridge. And they're like, they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, we're here 24 seven. So we have to bring our own food because at the time the cafeteria and thing was only open during core hours. So she, she gave hers up um, in their, you know, the front office, it's this giant fridge. So I'm walking down to get coffee and her uh, executive assistant is driving down CIA headquarters <laughs> building, which is this gorgeous, very official, very, you know, buttoned up building, pushing a refrigerator, a full size you know, refrigerator, <laughs> like it would be in your kitchen. And I laughed and I said, I thought she was kidding. He's like, so did I, my beer is still in here. I'm like, oh, That's thank you. Amazing. So um, she was wonderful. And then, you know, of course we have to say Sue Gordon, inspirational, hardworking, such a future thinker and and just one of those rare people who is not only someone who's a visionary and has amazing ideas, but she's also a doer. Yeah. And I, I just so admire her for that and her relentless optimism. She's amazing. Yeah. And there, you know, there are many, many others, right? Peers, colleagues, um, people that I was fortunate enough to mentor or be mentored by. So it's a rich, rich community since it's men and women. Um, but since we asked about women um, in particular, who are more than generous with sharing their knowledge and helping people get up that next step on the ladder. So, you know, you mentioned this a little bit earlier that you took some time off, uh, meaning you took some time away from the IC in mm-hmm. uh, the, the mid 2000s. So what made you make that decision to leave? Um, and how did that time away shape you? And, and I also want to ask, you know, I think there are so many career folks that, you know, maybe are risk averse or think, you know, I can't leave for whatever reason. Maybe it's, you know, they're comfortable where they at that where they're at, they feel safe where they're at. You know, will they be able to get back on the bandwagon once they come back? So, you know, did you think about all of those things when making the decision and, and um, how did it work out? 
I wish I could say it was that um, thoughtful. I mean, at the time, there just really weren't these kind of what we call off ramps where people had been in high level jobs and or really stressful um, circumstances that there's a place to go write a research paper or get a master's degree or not that that's not stressful, but it's not the same thing or take time off. It just wasn't part of the culture. And, and that's one of the amazing things that's happened since then is as the talent management people have created programs so that that is possible. And given the circumstance we've been in, it's been, I'm sure, critical for folks who are you know, now in or have been serving over the last 10 years. But I, I think uh, I left in part because I mentioned briefly that I'd led the team that looked at, you know, whether Saddam Hussein had had a role in 9-11. And at the time, there was an enormous disagreement within the administration over whether he had or he hadn't. And there was great concern about that being a reason to go to war. And so it's one of those times where missing times with your kids, there's no, it was a, you know, 16 hour day. And then I would go home and, you know, we could have at the time a secure fax would send me all the papers that needed to be reviewed. And I would review them until about midnight and fax them back and shred them and go to bed and get up, you know, five again. So I didn't see my kids much for almost two years. And it's where you ask, is it worth it? Well, we're going to go to war for the wrong reason. Yes. Yes. It's worth it. Or we potentially could, um, we ultimately concluded that that wasn't, it was, they'd had contacts, but there was no relationship. Um, so it wasn't one of the reasons that was used to go to war. And we obviously know that the WMD situation was, and that turned out to be a big challenge for our organization as well, because it was another area where we were really, we were really wrong. So um, I was sitting in my office and uh, my dermatologist said, seen once a year since I was in college, because I grew up in California and we believe putting baby oil on your skin was a good idea. So, <laughs> you know, no to, no to listeners don't do that. And you see your dermatologist every year. Um, but she had seen something in my last visit. She's like, you know, we need to take that off. And so I canceled four appointments over the course of a year to go get it taken care of because the vice president had a tasking or we had to do a briefing or there was an overseas something that had to be done. So I finally went in and got it done and it was on my foot, the, the thing that she removed. And just because of the size, I had to be on crutches because the stitches hadn't quite set yet. But I'll never forget that she called me and said, Kristen, it's melanoma. And I'm sitting at my desk, staring at my screen and my vision went down to a pinprick. And I thought, did I just kill myself because I'm too busy? And the sheer stupidity of that, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks. And then I looked down and I saw the, the Costco size jar or uh, bottle of Excedrin migraine. And it was almost empty. I'd only gotten it three months before. So I was really living on Diet Coke and Excedrin migraine and not seeing my kids. And it was like the sixth high profile crazy job I'd had in a row I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, so I left and it was more, I'm not even burned out. I'm like ossified, <laughs> whatever the, whatever the next <laughs> level is. And so it was more, I just have to stop. Yeah. I, I'm not really with the mission this important in the moment of time it was in, uh, you know, I did try uh, doing other things that were less central to the mission before I left um, not central, uh, urgent, I would say. And it's, um, I'm just not good at that. I'm an all in kind of go a hundred miles an hour kind of person. So, um, I used to say with pride that I could, you know, throw my body at anything and succeed. And, you know, it took that experience for me to realize that really that's not something to be proud of and probably not something to ever say again, but it's just, it's what, it's what the mission required. And I knew I couldn't meet the demands of how I wanted to be. And so I needed to, to stop. And it took me a number of years to get healthy. Uh, I actually 
bought with a friend, a sports nutrition franchise. And so it was all about health and working with teams and athletes and individuals to try to help them get healthier. Um, my big thing was there was never a bad day because, you know, no one died. No one was running for their life and Congress wasn't going to investigate. So (laughs) the the trick to having a great day is just to have the right bar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, oh my goodness. So tell me what you're doing now. What, what is Kristen doing now? Uh, Having a lot of fun. Uh, First of all, as you deserve. Thank you. you. I spent a number of years after leaving the agency. um, Finally, I I went back and did a few more uh, jobs after, after about six years. So I served in the director's analytic support team, leading that effort. And then um, uh, deputy director of innovation and technology at the open source center, where I saw in this era of media and social media, how powerful the insights we could glean from that information were. And so I really, I really felt the call of that and um, had left the agency and hung out my own shingle and did a lot of great consulting work for startups and big companies doing everything from helping with mergers and acquisitions to um, helping big companies create uh, teams that could operate overseas or small companies, really small companies and startups, just trying to provide advice and, and support new entrepreneurs. But this is, I was, pitched on the idea of running and becoming the CEO of a company called the Grist Mill Exchange. And we are picking up on that possibility, that opportunity from open source. So in the world we're in now, it's the fourth industrial revolution, which is the interconnectivity of everything digital. Uh, The amount of information that is generated by the internet of things, the interconnectivity of all these devices and sensors. It's remarkable. The insights that can be gleaned, not only for making sure a train runs on time or a subway train gets service at the right time, or you can evaluate pollution on a bridge or whether there's some uh, WMD weapons of mass destruction kind of material coming into a city all of that generates data that can be really useful for national security missions. And so the Gristmill Exchange is a place where government can find hundreds of companies' data all in one place. And we focus very heavily on the mission and making sure that uh, what kind of questions would we have had. We uh, have a number of former senior officers who are really looking at this from a tradecraft perspective is How do we vet the providers? How do we think about data? How do we make this an easy button for government? And the national security defense industrial base that supports them on contract. And so we are really enjoying learning what is possible in this world outside. You may know a group called Bellingcat that has done remarkable work in using this kind of data to find out about the Navalny poisoning, for example, where you know, polonium was used to as a horrible means of trying to hurt him, um, as had been seen before. There's, so there's so many answers in open source now. It's not newspapers and media co- uh, broadcasts exclusively. It's it's the fabric of our daily lives, right? I mean, it's everything from Starbucks magically seems to know when I'm walking by to offer me a new mocha that's, you know, they're offering for sale to the fact that, you know, I mentioned that I wanted some Allbirds uh, shoelaces because mine had worn out. And the next day I got ads for Allbirds shoelaces. Which we'll probably get uh, tomorrow as well. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But you can't make it up, right? So it's, it's this world of data that needs to be brought to mission. So no one has to be sent into harm's way for something that's already available mm-hmm. or without being formed by everything that's available. And we have to do this in a way, unlike the authoritarian nations who are just all over this, um, think China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, unlike them, we also need to do this in a way that protects our democratic values that protects privacy. And um, our company spent a whole lot of time focused on how do we do this in a way that best supports U.S. national security while at the same time 
protecting and honoring uh, PII, whether that's from the U.S. or elsewhere. So uh, personally identifiable information, sometimes uh, acronym soup is uh, the treasure trove of the U.S. government. So I apologize for that. But, no, I um, appreciate you. Uh, we, we often have to tell our guests to, to, you know, tell the folks what the acron- acronyms are, but you've been doing that. So thank you. <laughs> oh, good. Well, so I, I just think this is the future. Um, mm-hmm. When the National Security Act of 1947 was created, none of this was envisioned. And so we're seeing transformational actors, early adopters, leaders, in government really recognizing that it's the rebalancing that, that needs to happen. And we're really just honored to be serving the mission in an entirely different capacity. Well, if, if, if our listeners learn anything or take anything away from today's episode, it's going to be, you don't do anything 50%. I want to say half-assed, but you don't do anything 50%. (laughs) So we know it's going to be successful. Um, So, you know, I, I'm kind of excited to to ask you this next question. So some of uh, our listeners are probably not going to know that you led a coalition of willing uh, and really of willing women, if I may say, to create the first ever Women in National Security Media Festival this year. Um, tell us about that idea and how you made it to reality. Well, and Megan, thank you for being a part of that, Katie, too. It uh, really came about in late November of last year when it just occurred to me watching the news and there just wasn't anything at all that celebrated the people who are on the national security mission uh, in a, a celebration way. There's, there was a fair amount about uh, honoring the past and, and mourning the people who have, who have passed. And that absolutely can't happen enough from my perspective, but not in a celebratory way. And I sent a note to you and several other people, including Sue Gordon and um, Ellen McCarthy, a former senior State Department official with lots of other government experience at high levels, and just said, hey, I was thinking, tell me, is this a crazy idea? And you all said, no, let's do it. And all of a sudden it was, oh my gosh, now we have to do it. So (laughs) I think what I didn't know, and you knew, and Suzanne Heckenberg from INSA and others, Suzanne Kelly from the Cypher Brief, how hard this would be because we decided to do it in March. So just three months later um, during Women's History Month, that we would create a week where all of as many of the women's organizations who support national security or as many of the organizations that support women in national security could host their events or advertise their events all in one place. And we could really have that celebration. And so we ended up with 10 events in that week um, from a diverse group of associations, um, clubs, um, women's support groups for this community really coming together to celebrate their, the specific reason they were created women in that role, but also women in national security um, in a much larger level. I think had we all known exactly how hard it was going to be, it might've been a little more daunted. I might've been a little more daunted (laughs) in the beginning, but we pulled it together. I mean, you did an amazing job with the gala. We um, worked with, I mean, Ellen and Sue Gordon really led an effort to make sure that we had an opportunity to seek a medal of honor for Virginia Hall. Um, for those of you who don't know who she is, Google her. She was a remarkable, remarkable uh, woman who led a lot of the behind the scenes work uh, in France and elsewhere to fight against um, the Nazis and to uh, target their logistics line. She built networks to do that. Um, she was absolutely on the radar of senior German officials her whole time. She had a wooden leg. It didn't stop her in any way, shape or form. And she was just remarkable at what she accomplished. Um, I still am amazed that, you know, sometimes I think it's hard to get to the gym because, well, you know, it's at least a mile away. 
But, I mean, <laughs> and you got to get up and you got right, to gotta get up. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't go in my pajamas, but she, to escape the Germans, she actually climbed a mountain range in winter with a wooden leg. Like, okay, so really there's nothing in my life that's hard compared to that. So having, uh, we've gotten some really great traction, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, on the Hill to see her honored this way. So I'm hoping next year when we do it, that we'll be able to do this, but this grassroots group of women were just all doers. Like I I remember, remember you said, Oh, a gala dinner. Yeah. I know how to do that. I got it. (laughs) Just like, what, (laughs) how can anyone even say that? So we were really honored to do it To Um, we featured a film, um, a call to spy about Virginia Hall. We had um, several media events with various um, books that we highlighted. AWIC, um, amazing session at Politics at Prose, Politics and Prose with uh, Erica Roebuck. Yeah. Her book. I mean, it's just, and the gala dinner on the rooftop of the Spy Museum, where it's a small, intimate group, maybe 100 of us really celebrating. And it was post COVID. I think the first time most of us have been able to be together in person, it was a rooftop, uh, mostly enclosed, but a lovely day. So we didn't have to worry about the mask issue because the breeze was going through pretty well and just a celebration. It was just, it was just some, from my perspective, uh, magical. Um, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it from your perspective, having done so much of this over so many years, but Well, all I can say is that this was the twinkle in your eye um, and you sparked this in all of us. Um, And, and, you know, when you came to us, you excited us with your excitement and with your kind of vision. And so we were just, we were happy just to be along for the ride. That's how I feel. And I hope, um, you know, our listeners listening to this, who didn't know anything about it because it was kind of this grassroots effort and we did it in two months that they look forward to it next year. And, and they look into it because um, if nothing else, to your point, it was fun and it's uplifting and it's a celebration of all the fabulous women who work in this industry. So thank you for having that, that, you know, sparkle in your eye, that idea. It was just so much fun to you, to your point. So I look forward to next year and for any of your listeners who are involved with women's groups who'd like to participate, I hope you reach out via LinkedIn or um, through, through iron uh, butterfly podcast. And we'd love to have you involved. hundred percent. So this is the best part of the podcast. And I know you're ready because I'm going to ask you this question, but I'm also going to ask you how you came up with your name. So as everyone knows, we end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with um, the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So um, Megan is making the comment she is because (laughs) I had no idea. And so I put it out on LinkedIn this morning to say, hey, help. Here's what I have to come up with. And there are some hilarious answers and there's some that I would just never say. So, uh, <laughs> but I appreciated the, uh, the content. It's, it's very funny. I think I settled on the conductor. Oh goodness. I love it. I love it. Because I think my, what I am passionate about is bringing people together and if I think about an orchestra, right, you just, it needs to be a balance and you have to have for it to play right. You have to make sure you have this diversity of instruments and you're bringing folks in at the right time. And there's overlap and um, the, the dis- dissonance in having the wrong tone or the wrong timing or missing something is so noticeable. So I'm going to go. It's just one of the things I really enjoy is how do we build things together? So. That's what I'm going with. I love it. It's perfect. It is perfect. Kristen, I cannot thank you enough for this episode uh, with us. I, you know, the depth of this episode is just so incredible. I, I think people are just going to, in what, it doesn't matter where, it, at which question I ask, I think it's going to touch someone in some way. And I just really appreciate 
appreciate you sharing your story with us and your career with us. And, you know, thank you for your service. And I personally just feel incredibly lucky and honored to know you. So thank you for doing this with us. Well, Megan, I mean, I'm just honored to be here. I mean, what you're doing here is remarkable is giving voice to so many interesting women who've done remarkable things. So I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here and, you know, thank you so much for the kind words. I just think um, there are so many people who've done remarkable things and it's just nice to be able to talk about some of them today. And I hope your listeners come away thinking we try really hard. We work really hard. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes and it's okay. We just can't do it again. We have to fix it when we do it. So um, I really hope folks are interested in national service. Uh, I can't tell you how proud I am to have spent my career there, there in service of the nation and not always doing the most important thing, but always in service. And it's just, it's a mindset that so many of us in this area have. We're so fortunate to be able to contribute. So thank you for letting me talk about my time and uh, for letting me share really how just lucky I feel to have had the opportunity to serve. Well, and we are fortunate to, to have had you help protect us. So thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. And thank you again, you and Katie and Amanda and others for, for pulling this together. I look forward to listening to all the podcasts as they come out. Can't wait to hear more. Absolutely. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Katie Naquin Hopkins, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Riley Boyd for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. 